Amen. Well, good morning, good morning. Welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen, and I'm the pastor here. And uh, my love affair with music began when I was really young, maybe five or six. My parents got me, I think it was like a Fisher-Price Walkman. And uh, it didn't have headphones, and so it just played music out loud. And so I would walk around the house singing along to uh, a tape cassette, for those of you, you can Google that if you don't know what that is, a tape cassette of Neil Sadaka's greatest hits. And you're like, well, that's a strange thing for a six-year-old. I was a strange six-year-old. But I would walk around the house singing along to Neil Sadaka's greatest hits. And then kind of my next memory of music was kind of being, I don't know, maybe in my early teens, maybe 11, 12, kind of that preteen age. And I would be in my bedroom with my cassette deck and I would be waiting for the radio to play certain songs because I would have these blank cassette tapes in the deck ready to record because I was making my very own mixtapes. Now, at the time, I think I was recording like Mariah Carey and Boys to Men and, you know, again, still a strange kid, but I was recording all of this music to create these mixtapes. But there's an effect that happens when you begin to transcord, like record like, and then transpose from one device to the next from one tape to the next, one tape to the next. What happens over time, it's called generation loss, and the quality dissipates each time you transfer it from one to the next. So you have this quality that you hear on the radio, and then when you record it to the tape, it's like a lesser quality. And then when someone's like, oh, that's a really good mixtape, or I had like a girl that I liked, I was like, hey, let me give you this mixtape. And I would you know, make like a bunch of the same copies of the same mixtape and just distribute them individually. I don't actually do that, but that would have been funny if I did. I didn't have that many girls that were interested in me uh, when I was a kid. But as you transfer it from one to the next to the next, the quality worsens, the quality lessens over time. And I think the same effect that happens in music can happen in our lives with things of meaning, things of, sub, of substance, particularly in the realm of tradition. Now, I don't know if your family has any traditions, but maybe you have a tradition that you've grown up with that you don't actually remember the origin story to. If someone asks you, why do you do this in your family? That's a strange thing. Why do you go to, you know, why do you eat, you know, Chinese food on Christmas morning, whatever it is? Whatever your tradition is, you're like, I don't really know. We've just kind of always done it that way. And maybe this has been like several generations removed. So your parents did it this way, and then their parents did it that way. And so, of course, as you started to have kids, you're like, okay, well, we're going to do it this way. And you don't really remember why. We have a tradition like this in my family. We don't have a lot of traditions in my family. I don't know why, but we don't. Uh, but one of them on uh, my dad's side of the family is we have a large, a large family. He has lots of brothers and sisters. And so we get together for Thanksgiving and for Christmas. And right before we eat the meal together, there's 30 of us or so, we circle up in the kitchen and we hold hands. Now, my family, there's a lot of chiefs and not many Indians. So imagine 20 grown adults all trying to corral the other 20 grown adults to get in a circle and hold hands. This is what kind of happens every, every holiday. And so we finally hold hands, and then we say a prayer together, and then we do this thing called the friendship squeeze. And one person in the circle squeezes somebody's hand either to their left or to their right, and then that person passes the squeeze from the next person to the next person, and on and around the circle it goes. And it usually starts with the youngest and it makes it all the way back to the circle. And then when it gets to the originator of the squeeze, we all lift our hands and go, yay! And it is the silliest, goofiest thing that I have had so much judgment around my entire life. 
I've always been too cool for the friendship squeeze in our family. It's like, okay, here we go. All right, let's hold, hold hands. And you know, you have siblings, so you don't want to hold their hands. So you like position yourself in a different place. You're like, you know, not trying to be on the same team as these people. And, and it's never really made sense to me why we do this. I get the prayer part. I get the holding hands, you know, but the cheer at the end, it all just has felt a little silly my whole life. Until about it a year ago. And a year ago, my grandfather passed away, and he was the patriarch of the family. And it would always be in this moment when we were holding hands together that he would say something really poignant, really poetic and meaningful about how important the gift of family is. Like, look at all the gifts that we have, the blessings that we have in these people. And I was like, yeah, yeah, Grandpa, hurry up. We want to eat. And then when he, when he passed and we got to Thanksgiving, it was like, oh. This is, this is why we do this. this. Yeah, the cheer at the end is still a little silly, and I have to force myself to do it and really kind of feel it, but it is a ritual. It is an act. It is something that we participate in as a family that reminds us of something bigger than the act itself. It's not about holding hands with each other. It's not about squeezing hands. It's not even about celebrating at the end of it. But it's about a moment to stop and to be reminded of something more important than the day-to-day busyness of our lives. In the same way that that friendship squeeze serves as a ritual and a a reminder to our family, communion is the same thing in the church. And I think maybe of any other tradition in the church, it is the one that has suffered the most generation loss. As it's been passed down, generation after generation, year after year, from group and section and faction of Christianity to the next, we have come to lots of different interpretations and different understandings about what communion means. Now, for some of you, maybe you came from like a church background and it was like maybe you grew up Catholic and so you did it every Sunday and it was called Mass and it was the last thing that you did from church and then you did communion, you participated in the sacrament and then you left and that was kind of the ritual and the routine and there was no version of a worship service that would happen without celebrating Mass, without celebrating Holy Communion. Maybe you grew up in that tradition. Maybe they did a good job explaining to you why you did it, but maybe not. Maybe you just know that it's something that we always did. I don't really know why, but it's something we always did. Or maybe you grew up in a tradition where either you didn't go to church or the church that you went to, they just never really did it. It was like once a quarter maybe, or you know, when the senior pastor was out of town, they would do it. And it was this strange thing, and the language seemed a little cumbersome and goofy. And it was about remembering, but you didn't really totally understand. And, and so it was like, okay, there's something about Jesus you know, here in this, but we're just going to do it, and then we'll move on and get back to the normal services because you like to create space for more worship and more preaching, and so you're from that church tradition. And then maybe for you, you're somewhere in the middle where you did it pretty, pretty regularly, maybe once a month in church, and maybe some of it felt meaningful. You couldn't really articulate it or describe why it was powerful, but maybe in the moment when you came forward to receive the bread and then to dip it in the cup or to drink the cup or whichever kind of version of that you did, there felt something powerful about it, but you never could really articulate why. You're always kind of glad you did it, or maybe you did it and it was like, wow, this is going to be a long Sunday, you know, because we got to make sure everybody has time to go through it. There's lots of kind of versions of our experience with communion. But what I think is unfortunate about what has happened in Christianity 
is for the large part, we don't really understand why we do it. We know it's important. We hear it's important, but it doesn't really seem to connect to us. And so this morning, I want to do something a little bit different because I think that I have been guilty of uh, failing to properly communicate some of the significance and the meaning and the, and the history of communion to you as a people. And, and I think that uh, I've done you a disservice in that. So I want to spend a little bit of time this morning kind of setting the stage for why communion is important. In the early church, it was the central act of worship. It was the central component that communicated the essence of the faith. And now, today, in many churches, it's not that anymore. And, and I think that uh, that's unfortunate because it is among the most beautiful and the most powerful things that we have as Christians. Now, one of the, there's lots of terms that are used to describe communion, but the blanket one that communion fits under is this word called sacrament. And we believe that communion is one of two sacraments, the other being holy baptism. And these two sacraments are things that we participate in that help us experience God. It's a way for us to participate in God's grace that is at work in our lives. And really, this word sacrament in its kind of original language means an oath or a promise. And so what a sacrament is, is kind of the manifestation of God's promise and his promise of presence in our lives. It's God's promise to us that God is still working in our lives. God is still present in our lives. And so when we participate in the sacrament of holy baptism, what we're saying is this is an act that we participate in that invites us into kind of new life in Christ. Holy communion is a little bit different. It's not something that initiates our life in Christ, but it's something that nourishes us on the journey. So in many ways, what we see is that when we share in this meal, it's an opportunity for us to participate in the way that God is active and present in our life. We recognize that God's grace is something that we haven't earned, something that we don't deserve because of how good we are or you know, how hard we try in this life. It's something that despite our best selves, God gives to us freely. And so when we, we take communion together, when we celebrate in this meal, it really is about us participating, acknowledging and remembering what God has done for us, what God is doing for us, and what God will continue to do for us in the future. Now, there's a couple of different names that communion is referred to. Uh, one would be Eucharist. Maybe you've heard it called Eucharist. Another is the Lord's Supper. Maybe you've heard it called that. And the last is Holy Communion. And there are other names, but those are kind of the three most common. Now, the, the term Eucharist speaks to a certain emphasis on the significance and the meaning of communion. The same with the Lord's Supper and Holy Communion. The term Eucharist literally in Greek just means a thanksgiving. It's an acknowledgement of the thanks that we are expressing to God in the celebration of this meal. And now, say, so where do we get this idea? Well, we get this directly from Jesus' actions in the New Testament. If you remember, perhaps you remember the story of Jesus with the disciples in the upper room sharing in the Last Supper together. In this moment, what we see the, the Gospels tell us about is what Jesus did during that meal. So it said Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks to God for it and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And then at the end of the meal, he takes the cup and he gives thanks for it and he gives it to his disciples. Now this this moment of giving thanks during this meal 
is where we get the term Eucharist. It's Jesus was participating in something that didn't originate with him. And it's actually really important to us to acknowledge kind of the backstory and the origin of where this practice of communion comes from. Because it is a continuation of the Passover meal that was a tradition across the Jewish faith. This is what Jesus and the disciples were doing in that upper room. They were celebrating the Passover meal. Now, the Passover meal was a meal that commemorated what God had done for the people of Israel, rescuing them out of captivity and out of slavery in Egypt. And so every year they had a meal, a memorial, an opportunity to stop and to be reminded of what God had done for them and what God had promised to continue to do for them, kind of acknowledging God's salvific or saving work throughout their story. And this is what we see Jesus doing in the Eucharist. He continues that tradition. He acknowledges the way that God has been present in their lives. He gives thanks to God for this bread. And then he pivots it just a little. And this is where we get our Holy Communion or our our Eucharist from. Jesus says God's saving work in the world that we can point to in history has now come to fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus would go on to be crucified, and he would die, and then he would be resurrected. And so we see in that act the fulfillment of God's salvific work throughout the world. Jesus is saying this thing that we are thanking God for doing in the past, that we are having hope that he will continue to do in the future, it's happened, and it will happen through me. So this is kind of what Eucharist speaks to. It's this moment of giving thanks to God for the way that God has been present in our lives throughout the story and the history of people, not just our individual lives, but our collective lives as a community. Now, the next name that we see communion described as is the Lord's Supper. And then this, again, kind of speaks to that moment when Jesus was gathered with his disciples, but it places a specific uh, an emphasis on who the owner and the author of uh, author is of this meal, kind of like Michael talked about uh, before the, the last song when he was describing the difference between attending a meal and hosting a meal. This is the emphasis that the Lord's Supper places on this act that we participate in together. It would be really easy for us to have the opinion that this is something that we do together as a community of people, and so we are the owners, we are the hosts of this meal. And if you're the host of something, oftentimes there's a guest list. And when there's a guest list, that means there are people who are on the list and there are people who are not on the list. And so when we become the host of the meal, this is when we see uh, us drawing boundaries and circles about who gets to participate in it and who doesn't. Oftentimes, unfortunately, that is meant throughout history that it's people who think like us, it's people who act like us, and it's people who look like us. And so when we call this meal the Lord's Supper, it reshifts the emphasis back to the proper owner and host of the meal. And that's God. And when God's the host of the meal, the focus is not on anything that we do, but it's about the opportunity that we have to come forward, all of us, independent of our belief systems, independent of our actions, our choices, our history, what we look like or how we dress or talk. We all get to come forward and participate in something that God is doing for us. This is why in the liturgy of communion, we talk about how this is an open table. And all who accept Jesus' invitation are free to come and participate. Because just like God's grace is free and extended to all of us, unearned and undeserved, the same is true about this table. Because we aren't the hosts. God is. 
And then the last name, and this is the one that I use most often, not because it's right, just it's kind of the most familiar to me, is Holy Communion. And what we see Holy Communion place emphasis on is who we get to participate in this meal with. Both it's relational with each other. This is not something that's done in isolation. This is, this is why we don't do drive-by communion and I stand outside and you pull up in your car and I hand it to you and you drive off. That's why we don't do it that way. Because this is a meal that we share in as a family. It's like all of us gathering together in a circle, holding hands, getting ready to do the friendship squeeze. It's that same sense and understanding. It's not, though, just, though, that we participate in this with each other. This is something that allows us to experience and participate in what God is doing also. And so we kind of get this understanding of Holy Communion from this story in the New Testament. And if you remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus has died. He's been resurrected. And then everybody's kind of like scrambling and searching. All of the disciples are trying to figure out what to make of this. And then there's a story at the end of the Gospel of Luke that talks about these two guys walking down this road to Emmaus. And they're having this conversation, trying to make sense of and understand exactly what's going on and what all of this meant and how could Jesus have died. And they're trying to put all of this together. And then the writer of, of the gospel says that then Jesus appeared, uh, appeared alongside of them. And he begins a conversation with these two men. And they don't recognize that it's Jesus at the time. But they're having a conversation and Jesus is kind of playing plain dumb. And he's like, what do you mean? What has happened? They're like, no, you, don't, you, don't, you haven't heard what's happened in Jerusalem about Jesus of Nazareth who has been crucified? And he's like, no, no, tell me all about it. And so they talk about it as they're walking. And Jesus begins to kind of point to things throughout scripture. And he's kind of connecting the dots for them as they're traveling along this journey to Emmaus. And they finally get to the place where they're going. And Jesus is going to continue on. And they say, no, no, come on, come and share in this meal with us. Stay here a little bit longer. And so what we see happen is they gather at the table, and then Jesus, just like he did in the upper room, he takes the bread, he blesses it, he gives thanks for it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them. And it's in that moment when Jesus blesses and breaks the bread and gives it to them that they became aware, that they realized that their eyes were open, that it was actually Jesus in their midst. It was Jesus in that very moment. They could experience the presence of Christ in the sharing of that meal. And we believe this is the same thing that happens in Holy Communion. That when we take the bread and we take the cup and we bless it and then we share it with each other, that we can actually experience the presence of God in our life and in that moment. And we think that this helps us kind of along the Christian journey. It's not just something that we do because we've always done it, but we believe that this is actually something that as we absorb it, it strengthens us. It equips us. Just like food does in kind of a normal sense, it's nourishment for your life. This is the same that's true for the Christian journey and the Christian life. This meal that we share in together leads us towards becoming more like the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of the backstory and the different layers and levels of meaning about what communion holds. There is a lot there, and that, what I've shared, is just a small, small amount. It's also called the holy mystery. Because there is part of it that we can't fully understand. We can't fully grasp or know. And so there's just parts that we're able to speak to and touch to. Now, one of the things that I want to do together this morning is to kind of emphasize the fullness of what communion communicates and all of the different aspects that we've already highlighted. I want to share in the full liturgy 
of Holy Communion. Now here at the Grove, we oftentimes do things kind of in partial um, liturgy. We've kind of amended, adopted, recontextualized things that the church has given us throughout history and throughout tradition. Um, but this morning, we're going to kind of revert back to this longer, extended, fuller liturgy. So if you grew up in the Methodist church or a, kind of another mainline denominational church, a lot of this language will sound familiar. And really, if you've never participated in it, there's a lot of kind of call and response. And so we'll have some slides on the screen that will walk us through this liturgy together. And so there'll be moments when I'll read and I'll share. There'll be moments when we'll all speak and share these words together. But there are four parts of this liturgy that I think are important to acknowledge. The first is the invitation. Just like you would send out to your own party, to your own dinner, your own gathering, it's important that we acknowledge that it is God who is the host of this meal. And he is inviting all of us to participate and share in this meal together. And then the next section is a moment for pardon or forgiveness and pardon. We confess our sins. We experience forgiveness. We're assured of our pardon through God's grace. And this is just a moment where we acknowledge that uh, we come to this table not by merit, not because we've earned it or we deserve it, but we really are participating in something that is freely extended to us. And it's a moment for us to acknowledge kind of um, the salvific effect that this meal has on us. It actually, we can experience forgiveness, we can experience new life through Christ in this meal. And so the, the confession and the pardon acknowledge that part of it. And then we move in to what's called the Great Thanksgiving. And the Great Thanksgiving is really just kind of a carryover and a, a, a baton passing of the tradition of the Passover meal. It's taking time to name and acknowledge God's salvific work through history, all of the ways that God has saved his people throughout history. It's also acknowledging the way that God is still working to save us in our life. And so it's an extended time where we describe all of the acts or some of the acts of God throughout history and throughout the world. And it's that moment where we kind of acknowledge those things. And then the last is kind of the breaking of the bread. This is that final moment where in the breaking of the bread and then in the sharing of the meal together, we get to experience Christ's presence in this moment. And so those are kind of the four components. And so I'm going to kind of say a prayer to set us up for this, this uh, communion together, and then I'm going to come down to the table, and then we'll share in this, this liturgy. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to come to you in this moment, to gather as a people, to gather as the body of Christ, and to share in your meal. This gift of bread and juice that, God, in it, you enrich us, you nourish us, and you strengthen us for faithful obedience and participation in your life. God, help us to know your grace more fully in this life. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, as I'm going to head down to the table, uh, you're going to need the communion elements that you received in a little cup. If you didn't get one of those, if you'll just kind of raise your hand, and we got some ushers who will make sure that you have the elements with you. Okay. All right. Well, let's share in these words. Hear these words. Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him. 
who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Therefore, let us confess our sin before God and one another. Let's say these words. Merciful God, we confess that we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have failed to be an obedient church. We have not done your will. We have broken your law. We have rebelled against your love, and we have not loved our neighbors, and we have not heard the cry of the needy. Forgive us, we pray. Free us for joyful obedience through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And then in this moment, it's just a moment for kind of personal acknowledgement, personal confession of some of these same things. Hear the good news. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. That proves God's love toward us. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. In the name of Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Glory to God. Amen. Now the Lord be with you. And also lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right and a good and joyful thing, always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. You formed us in your image and breathed into us the breath of life. When we turned away and our love failed, your love remained steadfast. You delivered us from captivity, made covenant to be our sovereign God, and spoke to us through the prophets. And so with your people on earth and all the company of heaven, we praise your name and join in their unending hymn. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Holy are you and blessed is your son, Jesus Christ. Your spirit anointed him to preach good news to the poor to proclaim release to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed and to announce that the time had come when you would save your people. He healed the sick, fed the hungry, and ate with sinners. By the baptism of his suffering, death, and resurrection, you gave birth to your church, delivered us from slavery to sin and death, and made with us a new covenant by water and the Spirit. When the Lord Jesus ascended, he promised to be with us always in the power of your word and Holy Spirit. And on the night in which he gave himself up for us, he took the bread and he gave thanks to you and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And when the supper was over, he took the cup. And he gave thanks to you. And he gave it to his disciples. And he said, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves in praise and thanksgiving as a holy and living sacrifice and union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Now, Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. 
Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ, redeemed by his blood. By your spirit, make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. Through your son, Jesus Christ, with the Holy Spirit in your holy church, all honor and glory is yours, almighty Father, now and forever. Amen. And now, with the confidence of children of God, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one loaf. The bread which we break is a sharing in the body of Christ. The cup over which we give thanks is a sharing in the blood of Christ. This time I invite you to take your communion elements. There's two layers. The first layer is the bread, the wafer. I invite you to take that. And at the same time, you can open up that second layer packaging and reveal the cup. I have confidence that one day soon we will be able to share communion a little bit differently, but at least this morning, this is how we'll do it together. All right. I think I hear the noise of packaging quieting down. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, we thank you in this moment that we can gather together as your body to experience your grace in this moment, to be assured of forgiveness, to be reminded of your work in our life, and be encouraged to participate in that work in the world. God, as we receive these elements, as they become us, help us to become you. We pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's say these final words together. Eternal God, we give you thanks for this holy mystery in which you have given yourself to us. Grant that we may go into the world in the strength of your spirit to give ourselves for others. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, at this time, I want to invite our ushers forward as we take up our morning's offering. I'll invite Michael and the band to lead us in one last song.